The following is a message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. sermon title, which you don't have in your bulletin because I was not timely, is Blessed Are the Patient. And I actually put some, uh, <laughs> got it, uh, I actually got some uh, sermons back on the back there. I just want to encourage you with that. Hopefully you're not just picking those sermons up to, to check and make sure like that, you know, the preacher's staying on track or got his grammar right. Hopefully you're taking them and keeping them. I, I mean, you can like three-hole punch them and put them in a binder. This is the this is Durkeytown Baptist Church's commentary on James. So think of it as a hermeneutic that's being developed as a church together. We are working through James and something to go back to and refer to and and just don't just like they're done. I'm I'm done with James. We got that one out of the way. Let's what's the next book we're after? But uh, keep keep going back to that. They can be useful for you in that, in that way. Um, one of the, as I was reading, as I've been studying James and just thinking more and more about James, and um, when, when I think of James, I think of my son-in-law, Brian. Brian is much like James uh, as a godly leader in the church, and this is how he has the helpful ability to sharply rebuke with authority while patiently exhorting with amiability. I, mean, I didn't get that up there on the screen, but that's okay. It, you can ask me later. I'll tell it to you again. But like a good prophet, good wisdom writer, James keeps moving back and forth between sharp rebuke and amiable exhortation. The prophets will often come and they'll say something like, God's through with you. And the next verse, they say, God loves you so much. He's going to restore you. But he's really upset with you now. But he really cares about you. And, it's, and, it's, it's just, and sometimes that back and forth is, is difficult for people to, uh, to deal with. But that's what James does here. James, throughout this text, he's been hitting pretty hard. He's called us, us the church murderers, adulterers. Um, he's called us people who don't care about the poor and yet at the same time, he brings with it an amiable exhortation and hope. He's not just thundering, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. He's also encouraging, you, you, there's a lot of good. So be, be hopeful. And we're going to see that today because in this thing of patience, he's going to hit pretty hard in a couple spots. And he's also going to come in and, and then pick you up really well and end you with this. The blessing of the Lord comes to those who patiently wait. James had just finished sharply rebuking the rich who misuse wealth and power. And then he's patiently exhorted his fellow saints to be patient. 
trusting the Lord to set all things right at his second coming. And in the context of James's instruction, I think we could define patience this way, waiting for the Lord to show up. Now, at one level, we're waiting for him to show up finally, set everything right. But we also realize that that's, humanity's been waiting for that for 2,000 years. That's not all the showing up that God does. It's not just at the end. He shows up regularly in the midst of our trial and suffering and blesses us, especially when we are patient. The reasons and examples James gives for being patient are set in this context of the Lord showing up. So the exhortation from the word today for us is this, whatever situation you're in, be patient, wait for the Lord to show up, and you will be blessed. It's a promise of blessing for those who will be patient, those who remain steadfast. Now in verse 7, James has said, be patient until the return of the Lord. And as we wait and look around us, we live in times of trouble and turmoil, don't we? Now, the world has always lived in that. It's not something new. There's nothing new under the sun, the writer says. We eagerly await the return of Christ. We're hopeful for him to come and set all things right. And we might even be hopefully waiting for him in the midst of our own trials and difficulties. And that's not just individual. Uh, James isn't just writing to the individuals here. He's writing to the church at large. Church, think about the trial and the temptation and the struggle and turmoil that you are in right now. and What all is coming with that. But we are tempted to be impatient. It's what James understands. And in that impatience... We are tempted to look for our hope in other things, signs, other saviors, someone else who will bring the change we desire right now, who will make things more comfortable for us. But that's really not God's intent. God's main concern is not our comfort. His main concern is his glory. And he will do all kinds of things that make us uncomfortable in order to bring about his glory. And so we're going to see a little bit of that in here today. So we must be patient like a farmer waiting for the crops to grow because for the farmer, the blessing is the fruit of the, the crop. It's whatever he grows. But that it only comes if he will patiently wait for it. When we were out in Missouri, one of my daughters uh, got a, ate a plum and had a plum pit. We talked about how the you know, tree grows out of the plum pit. So she went out, dug up the earth, put the plum pit in, covered it up. The next day she went out, dug it up to see if it was growing. And she, this was her continual thing day after day to go dig up the plum pit and see if it was growing. Obviously, it wasn't going to grow, was it? It, was, uh, it wasn't going to work. She wasn't being patient and waiting for the plum tree to show up. We laugh at that, but, you know, I was telling, I was telling St. James, this, James is a book written for children, grown-up children. That's how we are. We laugh at my daughter doing that, but isn't that what we do all the time? Our waiting for the Lord looks like running around anxiously, trying to do everything that we can to fix the problem, and it doesn't work. Patience is actually the evidence that we are really waiting or trusting in the Lord. And uh, James, as you know, is real big on evidence, isn't he? 
you show me, you tell me you have faith, but I haven't seen anything. I'm going to show you that I have faith. I'm going to show you that I'm really trusting God to take care of this situation because I'm going to wait on him. That the, the, the Old Testament is replete with stories intended to show us the example of how God's people wait for him. A king with a huge army comes up against a, a king of Judah with a small army. And the king of Judah says, God, nothing I can do here. i got to trust you. And then God, God uses all kinds of weird things, doesn't he? He uses pictures with fire in them. He uses the treetops sounding like rustling. All kinds of stuff. He, he flood waters, whatever it is, he, he will show up when we wait. But the scriptures also tell us what happens when we don't. Because often those kings would go hire another king to help them out or make an alliance with someone else. And God would send a prophet to say, that was the wrong move. That was the wrong thing. And disaster would come. And often it would cost them, not just in money, but in being taken away and into uh, exile eventually. The situation that you're in, whatever it is, the evidence that you're trusting God in the midst of it is to wait on the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with farmers... Uh, you know that while they're waiting for the crops to grow, they're not idle. They don't put the crops in the ground and then kick back in the easy chair for a few months and just wait and see what happens. They're active. They're at work. They're doing all the things that they need to do. And so, and James picks up on that. He says, you also, verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That word established has this idea of firming up, making it strong, so it's not wobbly. Making it so that it will last, it'll, it'll, it'll work for what it's supposed to. And so the idea here is that while we wait for God to work and do whatever he's got to do, we ourselves continue to prepare ourselves for one thing, to receive the blessing when it does come. I'm suspicious that we often miss the blessings God is bringing because we're not prepared for them. And the preparation comes through the study of the word, prayer, fellowship with the saints, and ongoing obedience to the commands of Christ, establishing ourselves. This is the word that Paul uses when he talks about the church getting established or being strengthened so that it can accomplish the work that it's supposed to do. So in whatever situation you're in, waiting for the Lord... To show up, you keep readying yourself for that. You keep preparing yourself for that. So that you're, you have this expectation that he will come. And then he gives us this, a very simple test to see if we're impatient. Do we grumble? Do we grumble? I like the word murmur. It's an uh, onomatopoeia, right? It sounds like the thing that it is. Murmur, murmur, murmur. You ever, I, if you're one of my kids, you know that sometimes I'm walking around the house going, rrr, 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 rrr. something's not going right. I don't know what it is. I can't get it right. And, and, and I murmur. But what's interesting is this. If you look at the text real carefully, it's not about grumbling at God. Look what he writes. Do not grumble against, and he doesn't say the Lord. He says one another. Grumbling 
toward one another is, an, is evidence that we're not really trusting in God. That we're not waiting for him. And what can this grumbling look like? Well, one of the things that often happens is why it's evidence that we're not waiting for God is because we're frustrated. What we want to have happen isn't happening. And so we begin to take it out on the people around us with murmuring and grumbling. I was, uh, we were, we had my daughter uh, Lita up from, uh, she and her family came up from Missouri last week, so we kind of reset the house so that they could have a space to themselves, and that meant taking apart bunk beds and moving them. Uh, they apparently don't make bunk beds to fit through doors right, so we have to take them all apart, take them to the other room. Well, yesterday, Allison was here uh, doing music practice, and I was uh, tasked with putting together one of the bunk beds. I'm not, a, I'm not a hand fingers guy. If I need anything done that takes hands and fingers, I tell my wife, hey, come and help me with this. So there's this little piece that you got to stick in there just right and then get the screw in. And the way these people engineer this is you got to do it underneath the bed where there's a board covering it so you can't really see. So it's sort of blind, or you can try to climb underneath and, you know, lay under there and do it. And you've got one hand here and one hand around here. And my glasses keep going like this all over the place so I can't see what I'm doing. And I'm not being patient. And I start... And poor Jed, bless his soul, he is helping me as a nine-year-old helps. And nine-year-olds sometimes help like nine-year-olds. And they miss something. And, and suddenly I'm like, Jed! And I have to apologize to him later. You know, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just frustrated, right? But what am I doing? I'm grumbling against him. I'm grumbling against whoever built the thing or engineered it or whatever it might be. I'm just I'm pouring all that out on somebody else. And what did it show? It showed I wasn't being patient. It was very obvious I wasn't being patient. I wasn't waiting. I wasn't letting that frustration develop in me steadfastness now that's a that's a little thing you might say but it's that little thing like that that's actually demonstrating whether i really am growing in patience or not it's just a small thing but those small things often are the evidence of what's really going on and james had an earlier rebuke if you go back to chapter four look what he said to the brothers that grumble Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And he picks up on that here when he talks about grumbling with one another. He says, don't grumble. Because if you do, if you're waiting for the Lord to show up while you're grumbling, he might just do that, and you might not like it. Sometimes children get in a little tiff with one another, right? And so it's always funny, and one of them will say, I'm going to tell mom or dad, and it's always the parental follow-up question that's the most important one. They come and they say, so-and-so did this. And then I always ask them, and what did you do? And then it's, never mind, and go back to play. <laughs> the judge is at the door, at the, and he's listening, and he knows what his people are saying to one another. 
and about one another. And he is ready to come in to just take the door down and discipline his sons, his two sons and two daughters if he needs to. You see, we weren't set free to spend our time and energy murmuring and grumbling at one another or undermining one another or judging one another. That's, that's not what our freedom was meant for. Our freedom, Paul tells us, our freedom was meant to be used to build up the body of Christ so we will attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He says we were set free so that speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We're to use our freedom to lovingly build up our neighbor. And when we're doing that, frankly, we don't have time to grumble and complain. When we're actively pouring our energy into helping another person become more like Jesus, well, we won't be wrecking them. very careful. This is, this is where he's really got the sharp rebuke. The judge, the one true judge is standing at the door. And so we ought to be very careful, as he's been saying throughout his letter, be very careful what we say about one another. Well, then James goes on to tell us that the biblical, there's some biblical examples, two of them, to think about. They're examples of suffering and patience that we're to, 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 to look to to help us understand these things. And the first one is the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets, the prophet was a lonely person, right? I mean, most people didn't want to hear what the prophet had to say. The reason there were prophets was because they were sinning. And they were bringing the word of the Lord to say, stop doing that. That's kind of a lonely, lonely job. People don't want to hear it. And I just think of, I just think of was it Jeremiah that was told? You're going to go talk to the people, but you know what? They're not going to listen to you. How discouraging would that be? Right? How would you like that, Ken? get up here Sunday morning and a word from the Lord says none of them are going to listen to you. You know that that's not true here. <laughs> but but how do, that's, a, that's a lonely thing. And then the prophets, they, they live these harsh lifestyles. Here's another one for you. How about if you had to go around in camel skin <laughs> or goat skin or, 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 or eat locust? Like you don't get to live like the rest of society. You're marked out. And then there's a resistance to the message. We don't want to hear that. Tell us something we want to hear. One of the kings said to the prophet, why don't you ever speak something good to me? <laughs> you know, you're not doing anything good. And then many of the prophets were physically abused and even killed. But they're, but they're to be our example. The reason that the prophets are are written about and the reason we have them is as an example to say this patience in suffering is blessed and one of the ones uh, that I think is a best one of the best reads is Elijah 
Stephen, this is your history lesson, but you're going to have to do it yourself this afternoon. So, uh, 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 2 gives us the story of Elijah. And, and one of the reasons it's a good read is there's a lot of detail about Elijah in there. And James tells us at the end of his book that Elijah's like us. We, we have similar nature. We get discouraged. Elijah got discouraged. Elijah was so despondent at one point, he says, just take my life. Have you ever been at that point? Not, not where you said it in a funny way, but I mean a serious way you said, I can't anymore. But the other thing about Elijah is you see that the patience and suffering of Elijah gets rewarded with blessing. One of the great blessings for Elijah came at the end of his life because Elijah didn't die. Do you ever think about that? The blessing for Elijah, he didn't die. He was removed. The other blessing for Elijah, I think, is he got to come back and talk with Jesus. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses show up, and they're talking and encouraging. Can you, can you imagine that? The, the blessing of his faithful endurance was in part the opportunity to be used of God to bring encouragement to the Son of God at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to have that same experience. In fact, I'm saying we won't in that way. But that should encourage us to say, look at Elijah was at a point, at one point when he just said, I, I just want to die. This is no good anymore. And God came to him and encouraged him and strengthened him and then blessed him in a tremendous way, especially at the end of his life. That's why it's an example for us, James says. Take it as an example of suffering and patience, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Then he gives us another example, Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Look over at Job chapter 1. You, remember the, you might remember the story of Job. Um, God had a, had a bet, if you will, with Satan. Satan, God starts it, right? Hey, Satan, have you noticed Job? What a, what a godly man he is. And, Jake, and, 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 and uh, Satan says, well, of course, you blessed him with all kinds of stuff. I mean, he had, it starts right off at the beginning. He has seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female servant, uh, donkeys, and many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And he's a godly man who even offers sacrifices for his children in case they have sinned in their merriment. And so, jo so God allows Satan to attack Job. And you know the story in chapter 1. In a single day, his entire fortune is wiped out. And all of his children die. 
Just think about that. Everything you own is gone, and all your children are dead. And look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and murmured, grumbled. That's not what your Bible says, is it? Look what he did. He just lost everything. And look what he did. He worshipped. He worshipped because he had a good understanding of God. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, that's a great example. Can you imagine following that? I lose everything, and then I worship. I say to myself, you know what? I just lost everything. I'm going to go to church this Sunday and be with God's people and worship. Wow. And in, in, our, in our desire for everything to get turned around the way that we'd like it to, the next chapter should kind of surprise us if you don't know the story yet. Because our expectation should be, he proved himself, and God's going to be good to him now, and maybe give him back everything that he took. But in the second chapter, God's not done yet. It says to Satan, hey, did you notice what Job did? And Satan says, well, yeah, you took away everything he had, but what about if you touch him and make his personal, physical life miserable? And God says, well, try it. And so Job's afflicted with a, a disease of some kind, boils that are painful and so bad that his wife even tells him, just curse God and die. And what does he say? Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. The second round and Job still is going to be faithful. He's still patient. I mean, that in and of itself would be just a great example for James to put forth from us, for us. But, but I don't think James is just telling us so that we can look at that and go, wow, there's a guy who lost everything and he's patient. I guess I've only lost a little. I'm going to be patient too. He's, he's going deeper than that because if you go back again to that passage in James, he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I want us to see something out of Job here now at the end of it because I want us again to get back to understanding what real blessing looks like. Because I think often for us, real blessing looks, what we think blessing is, is like comfort, everything turns out okay for me, um, I get good stuff. But I want us to see here that Job, while Job gets the blessing of stuff, right, everything uh, he, get, he lost, he gets back, in fact, it's double that plus seven sons and, and three daughters, and his daughters are the most beautiful in the land. I can identify with Job. Um, I want us to see that there's a blessing before that that is much more important, that I think Job would say all that other stuff was just what we call the icing on the cake. Go to, uh, so in verse, uh, go to chapter 42, just to tell you, in verses, uh, chapters uh well, basically, after Job's three friends show up, from, from the, those chapters, I think it's chapter 3, all the way to chapter uh, 37, Job and his three friends 
give evidence of their puny wisdom. They think they've got this great philosophical argument going on, discussion going on. And there's a lot of sound stuff in there. But God's going to show them that it's not even close to what's real. And so and then 38, God shows up in a whirlwind. I was often thinking, you know, if, you, if you're one of those people that you just say, if God would just really show himself to me, I would believe. If they read their Bible, they would know that when God shows up, everybody just falls apart. They just tremble. He shows up out of the whirlwind, and basically what, what God does in chapters 38 through 41 is, is he shows Job that Job knows nothing, number one. But that's not it. That's not what God's really after. God's not just out there to prove Job wrong. What what God really does is he reveals himself to Job in a way that Job had never known before. And the proof of that is in chapter 42, when Job finally gets the response to what God has been saying to him, the questions God has been asking him. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then verse 5, verse 5 is key. I heard of you, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew something about you, God. I listened to the sermons on Sunday. But now... My eye sees you. And I don't think Job is saying like, okay, I, I actually got a visual picture of God. I don't think that's necessarily what he's after. I think what he's, what he's saying is my understanding of who you are, God, is clearer. And so my relationship with you is better. And one of the things that I think we miss, I miss anyway, in trials and tribulation is that it is God's purpose to reveal himself to us so that we'll know him better. And so I ask myself uh, this question. Where is it? Here's the question I asked myself as I was reading this account of Job and thinking about what James said. Would I be willing to experience what Job experienced in order to know God better? That's what James is really after, that patience is not simply about waiting for the thing to get over so I can get on with my life. He's about God is revealing himself to us, and he's getting our attention sometimes through trials but it's not always just about getting our intention it's that we don't really begin to understand who he is often until we get into those trials and so we come and we hear sermons we read books we read the bible we do all those things and everything's sort of comfortable and we're good and then God steps in and says it's time for you to know me even better for our relationship to go deeper 
I want to give you a little more taste of what eternity is going to be like. But it's not going to come easy. It's going to cost you something. He did this with Jacob, you remember. Jacob wrestled with God, and they're wrestling until morning, and uh, God says, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you what? Bless me. And a blessing came, but it was not an easy blessing, was it? From that time on, Jacob walked with a limp. The blessing is costly. And I think we're accustomed, I'm accustomed to anyway. What I prefer is just give me some more knowledge, let me know some more things about God, and then get on with my life. But that's not what God's after. He wants us to grow deeper and deeper into who he really is. And Job didn't know who God really was yet. He had lots of ideas about who God was. But he didn't really know. He had heard things. But now, face to face with God, the compassionate, merciful God, he knows now who he is. And that, I believe, is what James is telling us here. One of the the reasons that he draws on Job is not just the tremendous patience you would have to have to go go through what he went through. The fact that in the midst of that, God had a purpose. The purpose was not to show off something to Satan. The purpose was to grow in relationship to Job as one of his children. So, brothers and sisters here at Derby Town, Encourage us with that example and with the assurance of the Lord's compassion and mercy that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we would be patient and wait for the Lord to show up. I'm going to add something to that now. The blessing that we should desire is a deeper relationship Father, thank you for this text, and thank you for the examples that you give us throughout the scriptures. Job ends really happy in one sense because he gets all the stuff back. But in that, we might miss what the true joy was for Job. He had heard about you, but now, in your goodness and kindness, You reveal yourself to him in a way he had never known before. And Father, Jesus told us it was going to be hard. We were going to suffer. Help us to accept that. Not with resignation, but hopeful that in the midst of that, your purpose for us, that we will really know you better. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.